Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield account. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Winter comes to Texas, but the markets look past higher oil prices and keep their focus on earnings and interest rates and getting back to business. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Different experts have different views on what caused the Texas power crisis and what needs to be done about it. The Secretary of Energy under President Trump, Dan Briette, says the fundamental problem is moving too far and too fast toward renewable energy. There is a fundamental flaw in our policy and our system here in the United States. Obviously, the weather is having an effect on the energy grid, but it's important for us to remember that the weather is not the actual cause of the rolling blackouts that we're seeing across Texas and other parts of the United States. You know, it used to be, David, in in years past, we built the utility systems in America to provide energy when people needed it, when they needed it, like right now. And what we've done is we've moved away from that. That's what I just described is known as baseload power. We've moved away from that to a more intermittent and, frankly, sometimes less reliable form of energy in the sense of wind and solar. And when people may need the energy like they do today, the wind may not be there and the solar may not be there. So what we've done is we've moved away from that that energy security that we used to have here in the United States. And further, David, we've exacerbated the problem by, in some cases, making the baseload power And what I'm speaking to are the pipelines, the natural gas pipelines, dependent upon this intermittent form of energy. So when those windmills didn't blow in West Texas, that means the compressors on those pipelines didn't work. And that natural gas perhaps didn't reach those natural gas utilities in other parts of Texas. So we've got to address this very squarely and have a a very honest conversation about renewable energy in America until we can reach the point 
that we have grid scale storage and battery technologies that allows us to rely on this energy 24 seven, it's important that we not we not put ourselves in a situation where we're dependent upon it. Well, and Dan, that was going to be my question. How much of this is a storage problem? If we had the storage problem fixed, would it take care of things like solar and wind? Well, it would, David. That's really the challenge. You know, um, today, renewable energy does not have the ability to provide what we refer to as grid scale storage or 24-7 storage. So in that sense, it is dependent upon natural gas, nuclear and coal in certain instances to provide that backup power. But if you've made the backup power also dependent upon the renewable power, you've got a real challenge. And that's what we're seeing in Texas today. So to what extent is this irrevocable in the sense that coal has become increasingly inefficient monetarily, economically, not so feasible? So we have to move away from coal. And if we move from coal, where are we going? Well, I think we are going to eventually end up, you know, with uh, very clean forms of energy. It'll be things like fusion, nuclear fusion technologies, smaller nu nuclear technologies that have zero carbon emissions. Uh, we're going to see a, a lot more solar energy, a lot more wind energy. That's the transition that the world is moving toward. The challenge is if we move there today without baseload power, we're going to continue to see the problems that we're seeing today in Texas. Again, I'll state the point. It's not the weather that's the problem. It's the policy that's the problem. And what about the grid? Because I also have heard in the last 48 hours some talk about the Texas grid being different from some others, that it's more independent, that it's not as easy to transfer power from Texas outside of Texas to other surrounding states. Is that true? That is true. Uh, Texas has run the, the regulator there. It's known as ERCOT. That's the grid manager. Uh, within Texas. And yes, they are somewhat isolated from the rest of the country. There are instances, for instance, during the hurricane season in Louisiana, where we were, I issued an uh, emergency order to allow electricity to move from Texas to Louisiana to help the good folks in Louisiana recover from the hurricane. But those are, those are, are, are unique events. Uh, by and large, the ERCOT system, the Texas system is independent from the rest of the country. Is it possible on a short-term basis to redeploy some of the energy? One of the things that I've learned because of this crisis is the extent to which Texas in particular relies upon natural gas as opposed to fuel oil for their heating system. Is it possible to redirect some of the, the natural gas that otherwise would be going to LNG facilities to be exported? Yes, you can. Uh, the, the question is, you know, can you get those pipelines, can you get that infrastructure permitted in the United States? Intrastate pipelines in Texas uh, have been somewhat easier to permit than other places around the country. We had a unique problem up in the Northeast where we couldn't get no, uh, natural gas out of the Marcellus Shale in Pennsylvania, an enormous resource for the country. We couldn't get it to the Northeast, which wanted it desperately because the state of New York would not permit a pipeline to allow that gas to travel through its state. It's those types of challenges, David, that we face today in America. It's not just America, I think, Mr. Secretary. We see problems in Japan. We see problems in, in Europe because of extreme weather right now and the effect, way it affects energy and the power grid. Uh, what can we do to anticipate extreme weather? Because it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Well, I, I think it goes back to what I said earlier, David. You know, we used to build utility systems in America with security in mind and have it provide energy when people wanted it. I liken this to uh, a national defense. You build an army to protect your people when the enemy attacks. So what you want to do is provide a utility system that provides energy when people want it and need it. What we have today in America is exactly the opposite. When people really need the energy, our response is to tell them to turn the heat off, turn the lights off. That's exactly the wrong approach to energy policy. 
In your opinion, might this phenomenon we're watching right now in Texas and through much of Central America, United States, might it affect at least the timetable of the Biden administration's plan to go to clean energy? Well, I hope it does. I hope that there are some lessons that are taken from these types of events. And it's not just Texas. We saw the same thing in California last year as well. Uh, look, I think everybody has the same goal here. Everybody wants clean air. Everybody wants clean water. The question is, how do you do it? And uh, that's an important conversation for the Biden administration to consider. That was Dan Briette, former Secretary of Energy. Coming up, what the freeze deep in the heart of Texas may tell us or not about the move to clean energy from Eric Toon of Breakthrough Energy Ventures. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A snowstorm and brutal cold hit an unprepared energy system and left nearly 5 million customers in Texas, North Dakota, Arkansas, Louisiana, and Mississippi in the dark. Power companies in affected states had to resort to rolling power blackouts to save their networks from collapsing, leaving households and businesses without power and heat. What is our priority for uh, for keeping the lights on and the heat on? We really do need to have a very uh, broad mix of power generating sources. That's Ellen Wald, senior fellow of the Atlantic Council. In recent years, power grids have come to rely more on wind and solar power to meet increasing electricity demands. But the alternative energy sources can sometimes vary with the weather. And this weather was severe enough to hit both wind and gas fire generation in Texas. And there wasn't enough reserve power to keep the lights on, or the heat, or even the water in some places. Here's Ken Molas, the founder and chairman of Molas Company. You cannot force a government mandate on certain things that aren't ready to supply the basic uh, needs of people. To make things worse, the winter storm crippled U.S. oil and gas production, reducing it by more than a third. In the Permian Basin, major producer Occidental told customers it would be forced to curtail oil deliveries, while Chevron shut some wells in the region. More than 20 refineries were disrupted by the polar blast, sending gasoline futures surging. This is a timely reminder for a wake-up call, really, and saying that, yeah, we absolutely need fossil fuel yeah. in the mix. It's about how we get it greener. That's Amrita Sen, chief oil analyst at Energy Aspects. 
Temperatures in Texas were low enough to freeze oil and gas liquids in pipelines laid on the ground just as the cold caused demand to jump. Liquefied natural gas terminals were shut down to reduce their power and gas demand in response to emergency declarations. Here's Jim Wright, Texas Railroad Commissioner. As we here in Texas have said that renewable energy has priority on our grid, we've discouraged uh, people coming in and building power plants that run off of natural <clears throat> gas, which is more of a reliable source than, than as everyone knows, wind and, and uh, sun is. This energy crisis is severe, but not new. Almost a fifth of the power capacity in Texas failed in February 2011 during another cold snap. And California suffered blackouts during a heat wave last August. Not to mention multiple wildfires that in recent years have been linked to its power grids. Here's Paul Sankey, lead analyst at Sankey Research. In this situation to me is, is very reminiscent of Hurricane Katrina where, if you recall, on the Monday after Katrina, there was sort of an attitude that uh, this hasn't been that big a deal. And then over the course of the following week, it suddenly you know, emerged as a, as a horrendous disaster. But others say that it is wrong to blame the problems in Texas this week on wind and solar energy. There's a more fundamental issue of energy reliability. According to Eric Toon, he's managing director of Breakthrough Energy Ventures. We should instead focus on the underlying weakness of the Texas approach to its energy policy. Fundamentally, what you need uh, to achieve reliability in an electric grid, which is what we're trying to do here, is some combination of electricity storage and electricity transmission. And those two things sort of play off against each other. If you had infinite storage, if you could store all the energy you wanted at times of surplus so that you had it at times of need, you wouldn't need any transmission. If you had infinite transmission, so at times of surplus, you could ship your electricity to places that didn't have as much, and at times of need, you could import it from other places, then you wouldn't need any storage. So those two things, so you need some combination of, of storage and transmission to achieve reliability in an electric grid. Texas has a very specific set of problems. First of all, at the transmission level, Texas has a grid that is limited to the state of Texas. ERCOT is unique among electric grids in that it's only for the state of Texas. So they have very limited transmission. And then they have virtually no storage. Um, unlike other states, Texas doesn't store um, natural gas. They basically take it straight out of the ground and put it into the pipeline. They don't store energy that's produced by winds at times of surplus, so it's available uh, at, at, at times of need. And so what happened here is, is everything went down simultaneously. And fundamentally, the problem was water freezes. Water freezing is what caused the turbines to stop. Water freezing is what stopped natural gas coming out of the ground, because natural gas comes out of the ground with uh, with hydrocarbons and with water that froze up. Water freezing is the problem that uh, what caused the nuclear reactor to go down, right? That was that was a cooling line. So fundamentally here, the problem is water freezes. That's an unusual event in Texas that had ramifications for generation across the board, across the board, renewables, natural gas, uh, even nuclear. And with no storage and very limited transmission, reliability goes away. So that's fundamentally what happened. Water freezes and it has impaired some of the turbines, although there are a lot of turbines down there, as I understand it. At the same time, you can winterize those things, can't you? I have read that some of the yeah. northern states in Canada do a better job than Texas is doing. You, you absolutely can. I mean, they run, look, they run turbines 365 days a year in Greenland, and Greenland is certainly colder than Texas is today. 
you know, but but here you 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 pay money to build reliability into those generating assets, and uh, you can decide whether I want you know a a, a grid that's ninety percent reliable and is going to go down once every ten years, or I can you know build one that's ninety nine percent reliable and is going to go down once every hundred years, or ninety nine point nine that goes down you know once every thousand years, and that costs money, and 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 that's a decision that a society has to make about how much it's prepared to pay for that reliability. Well, and that raises a question in my mind, at least, whether this is a technology issue, a climate issue, or a business model issue. It is in fact the case that Texas largely has decided to run their system away to maximize profits, which means you don't spend as much in overproducing, having excess capacity and storage. I would say that that the business model is a significant part of the problem. Texas also doesn't have capacity markets. Um, electricity markets are very complicated things. You, you have markets where you pay people to produce electricity, but you also have forward-looking markets that pay people for capacity. Texas has not used capacity markets in the past, and I think it's something that they may want to look at, especially if they're going to keep an isolated grid. Eric, over the longer term, uh, we are moving toward renewables. It's pretty clear across the country, and the Biden administration wants to move us there faster. Does the Texas experience tell us anything about how fast we can and should move, and particularly when it comes to storage? Because as I understand it, there remain some real issues with storage from renewables. Well, you know, I think that, that we have to think about reliability. You know, as, as we move to an era of electrify everything, and that's absolutely where we're going, the size of the grid is going to grow. So you have to think about what new generating assets that you're going to put on to supply that power. That was Eric Toon of Breakthrough Energy Ventures, the organization Bill Gates founded to invest in sustainable energy. Michael R. Bloomberg, founder and majority owner of our parent company, is an investor in BEV. Coming up, President Biden insists he wants the federal minimum wage raised to $15 an hour. But will it cost more jobs when we still have almost 10 million people out of work because of the pandemic? We ask economics professor Arindrajit Dubey of UMass Amherst. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The federal minimum wage has been $7.25 an hour since July of 2009. And Democrats have been calling for a national increase, even as 20 states couldn't wait and raised their minimum wage on January 1. But will some employers hire less people if they have to pay them more? Economics professor Arindrajit Dubey of UMass Amherst has become a leading expert on the subject, and he has his doubts. So a little over a year ago, I conducted a major review of the evidence for the UK Treasury about what minimum wages do to jobs. Overall, the most up-to-date body of research, in my opinion, points to a relatively limited effect of minimum wages on jobs in US, in UK, and other developed economies. At the same time, it significantly increases wages, earnings at the bottom. So overall, I think that ends up lifting people out of poverty and being a relatively good thing. So the Congressional Budget Office has done more than one study on this, and I've read at least the summaries of them that concludes that on the one hand, what you said is exactly right. You raise a lot of people out of poverty. On the other hand, you lose jobs. Last estimate I saw was like 1.3 million or 1.4 million if you go to $15 an hour minimum wage across the entire country. Yeah. So I think it's, you know, it's sometimes it's hard to interpret what that 1.4 million means, the top line numbers. But is it big? Is it small? Uh, the way to think about it is this. The CPO analysis suggests there will be job loss, 1.4 million fewer jobs. 
Um, at the same time, wage gains are far larger than that. And so as a result, it ends up lifting people out of poverty and, and actually increasing earnings overall for uh, working people. Having said that, let me also say that I actually think the CBO analysis is more pessimistic than what I found. Um, in my review, I used a somewhat broader set of evidence, and I also paid close attention to some particular data points. And here's a, you know, going a little bit into the weeds here, but the CBO analysis really is basically uses 11 studies. And um, what the problem is that some of those studies that, there's a few studies that find really large job losses. And one of those is this study from the University of Washington that looked at Seattle minimum wage. It just turns out that that 2019, that that study actually was, um, one where they found really large job loss, but then it turned out that it was actually almost certainly incorrect. In fact, a subsequent analysis by the same authors found job loss that was one-tenth as large from the same minimum wage increase, and that was not included in the CBO report. I can go more into the weeds, but I will say that overall, I think that 1.4 million is you know, almost certainly too large of a job loss, but the overall tenor is that I think Minimum wage increases raise wages. There may be some fewer jobs. On the other hand, there's a lot of other ways that actually the economy absorbs the minimum wage increase. What about a differential effect on larger businesses or medium businesses as opposed to small businesses? One of the things we hear is yeah. it might be affordable for some companies, but when you get to the really small businesses, which are hurting right now during this pandemic, they can't afford it. So I think there's some evidence that the minimum wage increase does lead to reallocation from lower productivity to higher productivity firms, right? So that means that you may have some more employer, more workers working at larger businesses than smaller businesses. That's a possible cost. On the other hand, one could also see that as a possible benefit that you're actually allocating workers to more productive uh, enterprises, now, we hear from some uh, executives, like the CEO of Walmart, who says $15 an hour it makes good sense in some parts of the country, but not across the country, because the cost of living varies so much across the country. How do you respond to that? Well, that's interesting, because Walmart has a minimum wage. It's $11 an hour. It actually is the same in all states. And uh, so that's an interesting uh, point, because they actually chose a national minimum wage which was voluntary, but was binding exactly the same way. Same is true for Target, which is a $15 minimum wage, exactly the same across all states in the United States. Same is true with Amazon, a $15 minimum wage, the same across every state. So I think there are, look, there, there are different pros and cons for having right. a set wage. Right. Here's the way I think about it, that the federal minimum wage is the floor, Beyond that, 30 states currently have minimum wages that exceed that, okay? 40-plus cities have minimum wages that exceed that. My guess is that's going to continue to be the case in the future as well. Right. So the question becomes then for us, what floor should we have at right. the national level? Right. I want to squeeze just one more in here, and that's the earned income tax credit. Because some people say if the goal is to bring people out of poverty, a better way to do it is the earned income tax credit, because that's a tax on all Americans, not just people who employ other Americans. Yeah, so I think earned income tax credit is a great policy that should be expanded. I'm glad to see there's proposals out there. 
Here's the thing. I think the earned income tax credit and the minimum wage are complements. They work well together, not substitutes. Here's a simple reason why. The earned income, income tax credit actually does a good thing. It encourages right. people to work. Right. But when more people are looking for jobs, it tends to push wages down somewhat. A minimum wage can stop that. This is the way they can play well together. That was economics professor Aaron Dubay of UMass Amherst. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We cannot end a week on Wall Street without turning to our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, welcome back. Uh, You've uh, been outspoken on this program and elsewhere saying that you have some concern about the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, that it might overheat the economy. From what you're seeing, are you more concerned or less concerned than you were before? Probably a bit more uh, concerned. uh The Atlanta Fed this morning uh, said that it's now cast for first quarter GDP is nine and a half percent growth at an annualized rate. That's higher than most other observers. I guess it's too high, but it does say that there's likely to be substantial spending, substantial growth and purchasing power. I think there are a lot of reasons for it, but uh, Bond yields have backed up considerably in the last several weeks. You've got a treasury, 10-year treasury in uh, the 1.3 range. I think there's a growing uh, sense of uh, concern. I don't think that the data in the last three weeks should change anybody's mind profoundly. If you thought you shouldn't be worried three weeks ago. I don't think there's been data that would uh, convince you. But as someone who's concerned about uh, overheating risk, as someone who's concerned that if we do all this transfer payment, we're not going to have room for the public investment to expand the economy's capacity we need, certainly the data flow has been broadly consistent uh, with my concern. 
Well, let me pick up on that because I think some people may have not fully understood. As you say, you haven't said that we don't need a lot of support for the economy and even don't need to spend a lot of money. In fact, you've said really, given interest rates, it makes sense. But it's a question of what the money's going for. Is it for consumer spending or is it for investing in the economy? And let's connect that with jobs because Jay Powell, as you know, has been very concerned about jobs. Has even talked about federal jobs program. Uh, what do we need to get jobs? Because we're still almost at 10 million people unemployed today who had jobs before the pandemic. So you, you raise a couple of very important uh, issues there, uh, David. I'd rather see us uh, investing money that expands the economy's uh, capacity than simply making transfer payments. What's remarkable is that the advocates of this program, like Paul Krugman, when you put to them that it may overheat the economy, they say, no, no, it won't. People will save the money and people will use it to pay down debts. And I can't imagine a lower priority use of federal resources than improving consumers' balance sheets rather than repairing the country's infrastructure, making tests available for people to be uh, vaccinated, starting investments in a green economy, doing things for pre-child education. So the defense of the program that claims that what it's gonna do is begin a process of consumer balance sheet repair at a moment when, by the way, consumer credit is extremely strong, I just don't relate to that as a central uh, concern as well. God knows, David, job creation is really crucial. And we've gotta have job creation. But I think it's much better that we put the emphasis on the tasks that need to be accomplished and then figure out how to put the unemployed workers to work accomplishing those tasks. Then we frame the problem in terms of make work jobs. And that's why framing it in terms of a job guarantee seems to me to be uh, so problematic. So I, I believe it's hugely important that we work on preparing people to be ready for work, that we work on supporting employment in the sectors that employ men without who've not made enormous cognitive uh, investments where they work with their hands, repairing uh, the infrastructure, installing energy efficient systems of insulation and solar collectors uh, in uh, homes. There are plenty of tasks that are vitally important that we can make public investments in, but we give up all of that if we put the focus on uh, transfer payments. We also don't help employment any when we pay people more to not work than they were making to work. And what we are going to legislate is an unemployment insurance program that for the substantial majority of its recipients is gonna give them significantly more money when they don't have to commute to work when they have all the time to take care of their kids, to do what they need to do because they are not working, they are gonna get significantly more take-home pay than they did for working. And that's just not a pro-employment policy. 
Larry, one of the things that struck me this week was the CDC coming out with numbers showing that the life expectancy of the average American has gone down by a full year in, in 2020 and disproportionately according to race and ethnicity. What do you make of that? Is there a larger story there or is it just the one off of the pandemic? Look, uh, life expectancy is formed from age specific death rates at each age. And they obviously went up this year because of COVID. And they obviously went up more for people who were more disadvantaged in groups uh, that were more disadvantaged. So this year's statistic is driven by COVID. The dismal performance of life expectancy in the United States, and particularly the life expectancy of less educated men, that's driven by opiates, that's driven by substance addiction, that's driven by, as uh, Angus Deaton and Ann Case put it, uh, by despair. And that speaks to a very broad social challenge uh, that we need uh, to address. You know, I find it ironic and pathetic that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, people like Senator Warren and Senator Sanders, are all excited to give $50,000 or more of debt relief to young people who are working at Wall Street investment banks making six-digit sums of money, rather than focusing on the needs of the high school dropouts, the needs of those who are graduating from high school but not going on to college and need a specific training. And so I hope that progressives will disconnect from the elite concerns of Ivy League college graduates, of those with graduate degrees, and focus on the people they should be representing uh, the people who have been left behind. So let's wrap up the week here with a quick round of summer says. Uh, let's start with the Texas energy crisis. We've all been watching it. It really, it's been awful what's happened to those people down there. Do you think that that crisis will speed up or slow down President Biden's quest for green energy? Not much either way. Maybe it'll encourage some more renewable uh, investment. On the other hand, solar power wouldn't have been working that well in Texas this month. When do you think the Fed will raise interest rates? Sooner than they think and sooner than the market thinks. I'd expect rate hikes to be underway by the end, well underway by the end of 2022. Will its hands be forced essentially by inflation? I think a combination of inflation and perhaps an overheating economy and uh, fiscal policy on fire, particularly if we actually uh, build back better. And look, returning to more normal interest rates could be okay, but it's gonna be a very challenging transition. And I must say, it doesn't seem to me from the Fed's comments, which are all on the side of resisting deflation all on the side of promoting social equality. I think the Fed is not recognizing the era that they're headed into, where they're gonna face the kinds of challenges that the Fed faced in the 1970s. The Fed failed in the 1970s. And I think if the Fed wants to not fail, they're gonna to have to 
start recognizing the reality of those challenges. And that's going to mean a significant change in their tone. Okay, thank you so much to our special contributor to Wall Street Week. He's Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. How do you kiss a baby virtually? If you're not sick of Zoom and FaceTime and all those virtual ways of meeting, you just haven't been paying attention. The lighting that's never quite right, being muted when you don't want to be, and praying that you're muted when you think you are, and what is with all those elaborate virtual backdrops we see? But if you think you're struggling with our new virtual world, pity the poor politicians. Their life's blood is pressing the flesh and looking you right in the eye and getting a feel of the room. Just about none of that is happening these days, even as New York moves toward choosing its next leader in the fall, which means there's a large number of contenders roaming the five boroughs day and night without leaving their living rooms or their dens or their closets or wherever. The good news is they never need to go anywhere. The bad news is they really have no excuse to miss a gathering anywhere in the city, no matter how small. So this November, the voters of New York City will get to choose their leader, a leader they hope will lead a city badly in need of recovery. But it's not the first time this city has had to come back when some have counted it out. And as Wes Moore of Robin Hood Foundation says, you don't want to bet against New York. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.